You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hi, you're listening to Wonder Cupboard, uh, the podcast that asks the question, what is science? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Uh, my name's Ian Bridgman. My name is Elena Falco. Uh, what are we going to talk about this week? Uh, on this podcast, <laughs> that's very energetic. It is quite energetic, isn't it? I'm trying to. I'm being trying. I'm being really positive at the moment. I'm making some changes in my life. Um, what I want to know. Uh, I bought some new socks. Excellent. But I want to know, like, how can science invigorate me for the next, you know, week until I give up on this? <laughs> Well, this is going to be a really depressing episode oh, then, right, because okay. we are going to challenge assumptions. We're going to shake the foundations. We're going to get real. Okay, get real. That sounds that sounds right. Sounds yeah, good. That sounds like I'm what I'm trying to do. I've got my socks. Yeah. My socks have got real printed on them. That sounds good. It um yeah. So yeah. <laughs> Where are the socks from? At MS. Very, very good choice. They're from the M&S Rio range. <laughs> it's a very patriotic choice. Um, Thanks. So, okay, so today we're not going to talk about the history of science as such. We're going to talk about a more philosophical topic. Mm-hmm. So the philosophy of science is a branch of philosophy that most people don't really know a lot about. But what it does is just put science into context and ask themselves why it works and how it works and how it can be improved. The question that we're going to answer, or try and answer today, is why does science work? Mm-hmm. So, what would be your answer to it? Uh, why does science work? I think because we've worked out this method, this battle-tested method, um, of you make a prediction, you say clearly how I might be wrong on this instantly. You know, obviously you know more. So you make a prediction, you say under what conditions you could this prediction can be proven false mm-hmm. and then you test it as mm-hmm. fairly as you can and then you're like, yeah or no. <laughs> that's that's a very good explanation. Um Oh and we know that science works because if we keep going, if we keep finding lots of years and we follow those years, then we get iPhones. Yes. Um, so the whole history of science is like a, a slow build up towards iPhones. Yeah. I can see why we would think that. I suppose the question that we're going to address today is a bit deeper. <laughs> As in, I mean, it does have to do with technology, but it's mostly about why does science make predictions in the first place? Okay. Like, what's so magic about science that you have this method and all of a sudden you know the world? Like, if you think about it, it's quite a leap. So we're just these kind of lumps of meat scattered around Earth, just kind of getting by because we're, you know, we're a very successful species, but... We're not like gods or anything, but we seem to know a lot about the world while other animals can't Mm. know that much about the world. So how is that possible and how does that work? 
Okay. So in order to address that question, we have to start from the fact that we have two camps on the question, why does science work? Mm-hmm. Camp number one. Contender number one in the red corner. <laughs> Realists. Realists. Yes. They, they need to come up with a better name than that. Like. It's not very catchy. It's not terribly. Uh, and I think the, oppos- the opposing camp is even worse because okay. it's instrumentalists. In the blue corner. The, actually, no, I think the instrumentalist is a pretty awesome wrestler name. Do you? I think yeah. it's not, it's too long. And then you kind of get lost in in the middle. You just go, <laughs> instrumentalist. I just can't be asked to shout anymore. <laughs> I feel like the the instrumentalist signature move would be like throwing a trombone on someone. <laughs> What's the realist one? Uh, well, that's the problem. They don't have one. Exactly. <laughs> what is real? Everything. Yeah, exactly. They just as long as they do something, they go. Yeah, well, that was real. Yeah, it's a bit of a cheat, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Okay, so realists versus so instrumentalists. instrumentalists. So the realist position is. Science works because it tell us it tells us true things about reality. So if a scientist tells us that gravity is what keeps you stuck to Earth as opposed to float about in the universe, mm-hmm. that's because it's true and it works. Okay, so there is a real, real thing called gravity that is real in the world. And we describe it and we have the ability to describe it and base technology upon it mm-hmm. as well. Well, the instrumentalists go, actually, we don't really know much about the real world. What we do is we make models to make predictions. So gravity is a useful model to make predictions on the motion of bodies and how physics works. Um, But it's not necessarily real as such. That being said, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in science. They do believe that there are, like, gravity was a bit of a big example. Like, the, <laughs> there, are, there are things that they believe actually exist, um, but perhaps not exactly in the way we describe it, for instance. Um, so there are limitations. They're not, set out, they're not setting out to deny the fact that, you know, I've got a banana sat yeah. in front of me. Yeah. Um, but they are saying that just because we've discovered this way that, we can predict what will happen if I jump out of a window. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't necessarily exactly mean that gravity is the thing. Yes. Just that what we've got happens to line up very well with whatever's going on in reality. Yes. Okay. Um, so we might just know part of it, for instance, part of the story. And just to be clear, I'm not going to defend any sort of anti-science stance here. Mm-hmm. because it's a bit of a difficult topic. Right? right now, a lot of people are denying things like climate change and vaccines and so forth. Whatever happens, science is the best we've got. So science has limitations, mm. uh, or not. Mm, there's something that we're going to question. But even if I seem to defend the fact that science has limitations, it doesn't mean that science is wrong. It just means... Science has limitations, and we should know them in order to use it effectively. That's right. So don't shout at me. (laughs) Don't at me. Don't at me. Exactly. 
Oh, you know the Twitters. I don't know anything. I'm about pretty the down with the kids. <laughs> Keeping it real with the kids. Oh yeah, well with the socks. Yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. Yeah. I'm so real. Even my socks so real. <laughs> so we're gonna pick a strand of this huge debate about science, which starts from something known as the ultimate argument. So that could be a good uh, wrestling move. Yeah, yes. The ultimate, the ultimate argument. argument. Oh my God, he's just done the ultimate argument. Oh. I yeah. still not really, don't really know what that would look like. Um, I mean, it'll be someone falling on someone else in a controlled manner. That's true. That's basically wrestling. Yeah. Owes a lot to gravity. <laughs> so, the ultimate argument is also known as the no miracles argument in a bit more... It's, it's a bit more descriptive, if you say it this way. Okay. And we owe that to a philosopher called uh, Hilary Putnam, who has been active in the second half of the 20th century, essentially. So he died fairly recently-ish. So this argument goes as follows. Science works. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. So why does it work? We have two possibilities. Either it works because it latches on to reality or it's a miracle so he doesn't see any other possibilities and he goes we don't want to believe in miracles because we're trying to be scientific about this and we're trying to be rational so the only possibility we have is to believe that science is this kind of door that opens on some kind of hidden reality and that we are bringing to light with our scientific research and activities. Isn't this a bit of a cheeky argument from Putnam? He's given two options here. One is magic, and the other <laughs> is my opinion. Yes, <laughs> it is. And I do think that him, uh, he and the people who followed him in this have lacked creativity, if I'm honest with you. Mm -hmm. And we will see further down the line that... There's a third option. Uh. Teaser. <laughs> but we're going to explore this one first. Mm -hmm. Because it is reasonable if you think about it. You know, it's, it's kind of a very intuitive thing to say. Mm. It works because it's true. Yeah. So what Putnam is doing is using a sort of scientific method to explain science. So he's taking some observations on reality with in particular being that science works and we can build technology based on scientific research and using a principle that is called inference to the best explanation. So amongst all the possibilities you have in front of you, you pick the best explanation. Obviously that word best is a bit charged because it depends mm -hmm. on what you consider best by what, like, who decides what the best one is and what criteria are. So this is a this is part of a long tradition of people trying to apply the scientific method to why science works. Someone else who did this is a guy called Larry Lauden, mm -hmm. who in uh, 1981 uh, published this uh, paper in which he went, okay, you want to apply scientific method to the study of science itself? Let's do that. Let's look at the facts. And he lists a series of theories that have historically been considered true and test them against their success in the long term. For instance, ether. 
which I'm not sure that most people will know exactly what ether was thought to be. So that's, how are you spelling that? That's... Uh, it's A-E-T-H-E-R. Okay. So in the sort of 19th century, um, ether was this postulated substance that was used to explain a lot of phenomena. It was a substance that had infinite elasticity, basically no density, and that we couldn't perceive, but was everywhere. The thought being that every physical phenomenon needs some kind of medium to exist. So, for instance, the motion of bodies can't happen through void, but it needs something to uh, sustain it. So you would have this medium, the ether, that sustains the motion of bodies. So, for example, if I was throwing a tennis ball through space, then they would say that it's ether that is pushing it. Yes. Or some kind of more complicated description of something like that. Okay. Because the, the behaviour of ether could be described with equations and very sophisticated theories, actually. It wasn't so naive. So they're not going just like, hey, did you eat my cheese from the lab fridge? And the other guy's going, uh, ether? Yeah, exactly. It was ether. <laughs> ether did it. It's not an ether of the gaps. No. Um, but it, it did do a lot of things. Okay. Which I always find a bit suspicious. Mm -hmm. Like when you have one simple explanation for everything, you probably need to refine what you're doing there. So ether was used to explain what we would now call electromagnetism, light, the dissipation of heat, gravity, all sorts, mm -hmm. in different ways. So if we take, for instance, the ether that was used to explain light, which was called luminiferous ether, <laughs> which I think is quite nice and it's got Very that nice. alchemic flavour to it. So it was the medium through which light would propagate, according to this theory. So there was this scientist whose name was Fresnel who made predictions based on his description of how ether would function as a medium for light. And these equations actually made accurate predictions. So if one of the big ones is that if you have a disk and you project light on it, then in the middle of the shadow that is projected by the disk, a brighter spot would appear. And that's something that fits perfectly within the luminiferous ether theory. Right. So he, to, at the time, to all intents and purposes, it looked like he got it right. Yeah. It was predictive. It, yeah. it correctly predicted what was going to happen. And he said, oh, the reason, it's luminiferous ether. ether. <laughs> yes, it, it was perfectly fine. There was no reason to doubt it. Mm. A bit like now we have no reason to doubt science most of the time. You know, mm. we take for granted a lot of things. Even though, you know, there, there is progress in science, but we, there are things that we kind of take for granted and we think that's kind of solid. You know, we know that's true. Mm. So London takes this one and goes, so, fine. So later on, they discovered that actually ether was not a thing. And that happened with a lot of other theories on how the world works <clears throat> and he lists a few like the crystalline spheres of ancient and medieval astronomy 
which we have talked about in the Galileo episode. The humoral theory of medicine, the effluvial theory of static electricity, and so on and so forth. I'm not going to go into all of these because it would be a whole different episode mm-hmm. and we're probably going to talk about these uh, in the future anyway. But he says all these theories were perfectly fine and perfectly predictive at the time and turned out to be wrong. So the point number one is prediction doesn't seem to have this direct relationship to being true or being real, does it, at this mm. point? So Putnam's argument is starting to wobble a bit. And this, Putnam's argument was that... If something is predictive, it means that it's talking about something that is real. Yeah. In this case, not true. Mm. In all these cases, not true. It's a fairly long list. And it all pertains to modern science, by the way. It's not something that you would think, you know, the ancients were thinking this and it was just philosophy or natural philosophy or whatever. We're talking things that came out of the scientific method. So point number two, which is slightly scary, is what of the theories that we take for granted now? They are perfectly predictive. All our evidence matches up with with the theories, but how do we know which ones are going to turn out to be wrong in the future? Okay, Phoebe, this is it. In this briefcase, I carry actual scientific facts. A briefcase of facts, if you will. Some of these fossils are over 200 million years old. Okay, look, before you even start, I'm not denying evolution, okay? I'm just saying that it's one of the possibilities. It's the only possibility, Phoebe. Okay. Ross, could you just open your mind like this much? Okay. Now, wasn't there a time when the brightest minds in the world believed that the Earth was flat? And up until, like, what, 50 years ago, you all thought the atom was the smallest thing until you split it open and this, like, whole mess of crap came out. (laughs) Now, are you telling me that you are so unbelievably arrogant that you can't admit that there's a teeny tiny possibility that you could be wrong about this? There might be. A teeny, tiny possibility. Can't believe you caved. What? You just abandoned your whole belief system. Mm. No, I mean, before I, I didn't agree with you, but at least I respected you. This argument is called, also with a very catchy name, which could be another weapon in the instrumentalist's camp, which is the pessimistic meta-induction. <laughs> Woo! It does sound like a line from Park Life. <laughs> it's not about your pessimistic meta-induction. Park, Park Life! life. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So what it means is just I'm kind of taking this argument further and getting to a conclusion that is not very nice. <laughs> that, that's kind of what it's that like. They were wrong before, who's to say we're not wrong now. Yeah. Um, which is a good point, mm. if you think about it. So at this point, it's not looking good for the realists. They're really getting beaten in this wrestling match. Correct. Okay. Let's see what happens in round two. Ding, ding, ding. 
we've kind of mixed a boxing wrestling metaphor here. Yeah, I'm starting to trouble. Get... Yeah, because I don't know anything about wrestling. No, me neither. It's going to be fine. <laughs> Carry on. You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. So the realists mm-hmm. have another weapon up their sleeve. Sure. I'm introducing a third metaphor. Well, that's no, how I roll. A wrestling outfit could have sleeves. Yes. It's not very usual, but. Yeah. So what do they pull out the sleeve? Continuity. Oh, yeah. oh my god, it looks like they're gonna use continuity. Yeah. So one strategy that the realists have been using extensively is to find continuity in the history of science in order to defend the fact that perhaps we were not quite right at the time, but we're kind of getting closer. Mm-hmm. So there was an intuition there about the real fabric of reality that was not quite surrounded by the right theory, but the intuition was correct. So the ether bit, that was wrong. Yeah. But he was getting at the right sort of thing. Yes. And that's real? Yes. Okay. So to carry on with light, the way we now explain light comes from a series of equations that were published between 1861 and 1862 by a scientist called James Clerk Maxwell, who was a physicist and a mathematician. These equations do not describe what the ether does, but they describe what we would call electromagnetism. However, it has been argued that Fresnel's equations about the ether kind of fit within Maxwell's equations as limiting cases. So this means that the mathematical intuition was correct, even though the entity that they're referring to is different. So the difference between the two theories is the metaphysics. So the metaphysics is what you believe something really is. So the set of assumptions that you have about the real essence of reality, which obviously for the realists is very important because if you're talking about science as something that latches onto reality, that means that your theory of reality has to depend on what science says and what you think science says about reality. And this led to a position that is considered one of the most reasonable forms of realism, which is called structural realism, and was started by someone called John Worrell, who was a philosopher. And he's saying, basically, the reason why we keep getting things wrong is that we focus too much on entities. So we are so hung up on what exactly the medium is, that we lose sight of what we get right, which is the equations, which mirror the structure of reality. So this guy really likes maths. He loves it. (laughs) He loves it so much that basically his position ends up having to commit to the fact that reality is mathematical. So that reality is made of, not described by, but made of maths. Okay. Which is quite 
a big statement if you think about it. So the reason for this is, comes from a different question, which is, fine, so science, maths, whatever, describes reality, but how? Like, how is it possible that the previously mentioned lumps of meat just wandering around this rock flung into space have access to the ultimate fabric of reality? That mm. seems a bit of a big leap, doesn't it? So there's a tradition of this idea that our ideas mirror reality somewhat. So it's this idea of adequacy. So a mirroring of the structure of things by the structure of our ideas. So what's in our minds has a relationship with the structure of the world. So because we're part of existence, we have an intuition as to how existence works? Yes. Okay. And it's something you can see in Plato, for instance. So Plato thought that the basis for the real world is this realm of ideas where these abstract blueprints for the world were kind of floating around and that we get a glimpse of this world in between lives. Right. So this is kind of the origin of the idea. And, and so we kind of remember this world as we live. Obviously, this is not what these people are really thinking in the Middle Ages at this point, but it's, it's an echo of that kind of idea that we have a privileged access to uh, this abstract world. What we dragged to kind of modern philosophy from this very mystical background is the idea that science somehow models reality. So there is the relationship of similarity between the two. And if you think that science has equations as their main focus and there is a relationship of similarity between science and reality, then you get to the point where you have to say that science and reality are the same thing, essentially. So the maths is both. Okay. And this is not an outlandish idea. I mean, it sounds a bit <laughs> bizarre. I'm going to start taking better care of my calculator. <laughs> <laughs> but there are physicists who actually think that that's the case. Uh, Galileo Galilei thought so. There's a very good book by a physicist called uh, Max Tegmark about the structure of the universe in which he defends this idea that perhaps the universe is made of maths. And that obviously raises questions as to, you know, so was it programmed? Are, mm. are we in a programmed universe, programmed universe and we're just kind of to decode it? Is that what's happening? Is that God? We've reached the part of, the epi of every episode where we have to go, but so are we in the Matrix? <laughs> we're going to address that eventually. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, it gets pretty intense metaphysically. Mm. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's quite a big commitment. Yeah. And in fact, when Warhol raised this the first time, people thought that he was talking about the fabric of reality, while other people thought it was making just an epistemological point, epistemological be meaning uh, just related to how we know things. Mm. And it was actually a bit of debate of what he actually meant. But I think you can't really mean one thing without meaning the other. Um, so he probably just meant both. Yeah. Now, 
an objection that instrumentalists are just now teemingly oh, raising. Oh, we're fighting back. I, know, I mean, basically, instrumentalists... It took a hell of a blow with the structural realism, but now they're like, ah, but what about this? I mean, at this point, instrumentalists are on the floor with yeah. the big guy just kind of lying on top of them. Yeah. <laughs> That's the level we're at. Get, getting all the cheers from the crowd. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, there's the ones that are like the underdogs are going, come on! And the crowd's going, maths, 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 maths. <laughs> so a little finger comes out of under the big realist guy <laughs> and points out timidly that scientists are actually quite conservative in their day-to-day -day work. So obviously there are big theories that revolutionise uh, science every now and again, but normally they just kind of build upon previous assumptions. And so if you've got maths that works, it's pretty good solid maths that can be reused. You're not going to throw that maths just in the bin. You're going to reuse it. You're mm. going to do some upcycling on the math, <laughs> you know? It was a chair, now it's a shelf. You're going to put your equation on Pinterest. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you can use it in your wedding decorations. If yeah. you have some old mason jars, just spray paint them. Good as new. Put some flowers in. So the idea being that, yeah, I mean, these equations are carried through, but it's just because they kind of work and there might be something in there but it's not really a lethal blow is it so what they're saying is these equations they're not being kept between theories you've got the old theory that didn't really make sense you've got the new theory that does but they're sharing these equations they're not being taken from one to the other because they're part of the essential fabric of reality. They're being taken from one to the other because it's convenient. Yes. I do think it's a bit of a weak objection. Okay. But there's something to it. So at this point, it looks like, yeah, the instrumentalists, they've tried to have a bit of a comeback, but still the realists are pretty much, pretty much kind of winning on this one. So where do we go from here? Well... We'll see in the third round of this wrestling match, which is, also, which is also a bit like a boxing match. So we do the rounds. Ding, ding, ding. Wonder covered. So it looks like realists are winning. Mm -hmm. However, there's a secret move that instrumentalists haven't pulled out yet. Okay. And this move is called constructive empiricism. <laughs> I mean, it's, it does sound like the instrumentalists are, kind of, are trying to bore the realists into submission. <laughs> so this is, I think it's a very clever idea. I'm not sure whether this person that came up with it is correct, but it's quite a radical change in tone in okay. the conversation. So he goes, okay, so we want to use scientific arguments to demonstrate ways science works. So that's what Putnam was trying to do. That's what Lorden was trying to do. But they got the wrong end of the stick. So what you should do is you should see science as a biological phenomenon. 
because as previously mentioned, lumps of meat, blah, blah, blah. We developed science as a coping mechanism to deal with our surroundings. So first of all, to understand how things work so we can predict them and feel more in control of our lives, but also to come up with technologies that can help us practically in a world that we can't fully control. So if it's a biological phenomenon, then the theory that seems to be more apt at explaining it is the theory of evolution. This person who came up with this uh, was Dutch, well, is still alive, a Dutch philosopher called Bas van Frassen. So van Frassen's there. He suddenly appears and, like, uh, outside the ring, and everyone's like, what? And he starts running towards the ring to save his buddy instrumentalism. Everyone else. (laughs) And, like, they just extend the hand and then tag! Van Frassen's in the ring. Oh, he's going to do... Constructive empiricism. Whoa! Yeah, he's he's got a tattoo of Darwin on his chest. <laughs> he rips his costume and reveals Darwin and goes, "You fools!" <laughs> he's not very good at trash talk. No, but it's fine. He's a philosopher. <laughs> so, and he says, "Okay, so why are we not?" looking for a feedback mechanism here. Evolution is based on a feedback mechanism, which is um, mutations happen more or less by chance Then those who survive long enough to reproduce have their mutations passed on to the next generation. So we just need to look for that thing that makes scientific theories survive. Yes. And to him, that thing is prediction. So he says, it's not that scientific theories all predict reality. It's just that the, it's, a, it's a matter of numbers. So loads of explanations of reality are produced at the same time. And those who are predictive then become known as scientific theories. Which I think is quite a clever way to put it. Because it doesn't have to assume ambitious metaphysics or any metaphysics at all really it could work with any kind of metaphysics because it's not about how reality is but it's about how we cope with it essentially and it doesn't have any hidden murky features it's literally just whatever explain things is science mm-hmm. so i think the intuition there is to put prediction first so not saying why does why is science predictive, but it's saying some things are predictive, that's what we call science. Right. So basically what we do, according to him, is we use patterns that we see in reality and we just use them to make predictions. And that pattern recognition is what substantiates the prediction part of of science. And this can also actually be applied to uh, equations themselves. So all the bits about equations, so the, the um, objection that I raised earlier and this one were uh, put forward by a Greek philosopher whose name is uh, Statis uh, Psillos. And he says, you can apply Van Frassen's theory to equations as well. So you can say the equations that get um, used again after a theory has been disproved 
are the ones that still work. So not all equations are maintained. They just end up being like retained because they're predictive. So it's again, it's the other way around. Prediction comes first. Which also raises the important point that you can't use the continuity of mathematics because not all mathematics is retained. Okay, so there, there are examples where the maths is thrown away as well yes. when, a, when a, a, an old theory becomes invalid. Yes, and also, if you look at the history of science, it's not like anyone made an effort to retain the equations unless they were kind of helpful. So nobody has ever criticised, and this is an objection that Laudan makes before all these people talk about it, but right, he kind of preempts this objection in the first place. He says... No one has criticised anyone for not retaining anything from previous theories. You know, you can come up with a new theory. As long as it's predictive, we're all fine with it. Mm. Um, so conservatism is more of a practical thing. So now it seems like the, the original objection on conservatism kind of makes a bit more sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it seems like... At this point, the instrumentalists have the upper hand, mm -hmm. right? But I think at this point, love wins. <laughs> Maybe the real answer here is not realism or instrumentalism, but the friends we made along the way. Exactly. Mm. Very wise, very deep. And the friend being the fact that both approaches at this point in the discussion... In 2018. In 2018, yes. Assume that there are parts of reality that are unknowable. So, Worrell and his structural realism would say that we can know the structure, but not, let's say, the meat around the structure. So the entities are a bit murky. We can't really know entities very well, but we can know the structure. I know that my kebab is in a pit of bread but I'm not entirely sure what's, what's in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are kind of areas of ignorance that we just can't really penetrate. And the thing that Van Frassen does is saying, yeah, but they're much bigger than you think. So it's just, at this point, is a disagreement on what exactly we can't know about reality, which is a very important question. Hmm. And also another thing that is common amongst all people who are involved in this kind of debate at this point in history is the fact that some form of scepticism has to be um, used, as in everyone admits that there is probably something wrong in science as it currently is. So there are probably some beliefs that we have that are based in science that are going to turn out to be wrong. So blindly believing everything is probably not a very successful approach but we should kind of be a bit more probabilistic about it so say there's a very high chance that this might be true if you want to be a realist or uh, there's a very high chance that this is going to be predictive and I'm going to use it to make predictions regardless of what the underlying reality is if you want to be an instrumentalist but we are basically sure that a lot of what we think is now true will change over time. So it's time for the references. And now, the references. My favourite source for this episode is Van Frassen's book, which is called The Scientific Image and was written in 1980. 
Not because I side with him and I think he's great and I want to marry him. <laughs> because I don't. But because I mean, it's, it's an amazing book in general. It's very interesting. And the last chapter is basically a big joke. <laughs> so he's been trolling his readers with this last chapter in which he pretends to have had some kind of enlightenment and <laughs> has become a realist. <laughs> and I find it hilarious because initially I, I was reading it and I was like, but this contradicts everything he said so far. Like, how is this possible? And I actually took him seriously for the most difficult six hours of my life. Yeah, I remember you walking around the flat with a really serious frown <laughs> on your face. <laughs> like, going, but what? This book, it's ruined. <laughs> yeah, and also as a philosopher, you spend a lot of time trying to reconcile positions to see whether there's something there. So you've got this mindset by which you try to tease things together and see where they work and blah, blah, blah. And it just doesn't. And then I realised the Dutch <laughs> and their interesting sense of humour, <laughs> which I love. So I think that's worth reading just because of that. Then important papers that are very interesting and relevant to this episode are uh, Larry Lauden's A Confutation of Convergent Realism, which is the one in which he outlines the pessimistic meta-induction. Park uh, life. <laughs> yes. Um, and John Worrell's Structural Realism, The Best of Both Worlds. <laughs> Snappy title, John. I know, right? It's, it's a very good writer, actually. I hmm. think you like it, like you read it and you go, oh, he sounds like such a nice chap. <laughs> um, obviously, there are other... Um, sources that I've used and I have put the details on the website which is wondercupboard.com excellent uh, so you can find it there and you can also if you want to suggest topics or you have questions or I've got something terribly wrong and you want to shout at me you can tweet at us yeah at wondercupboard is our twitter handle yeah. And uh, and also we're on Facebook. Just search for Wonder Cupboard and you'll find our colourful icon. Which I drew. Yeah. So what have we learned today? I think what we've learned is that my iPhone works, but I don't know if that's because it's real. <laughs> Wonder Cupboard. Safety. I know, I'm not gonna, I was not planning to. <laughs> <laughs>